You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Chinese intelligence and security services have been busy in cyberspace. A third-party customer leaks data it received from Monster.com. There's a joker in the Play Store. Some notes from the Billington Cybersecurity Summit, a military look at cyber ops, what CIS is up to, and some advice from the NCSC. Can CISOs learn a thing or two from VCs? Antitrust investigations are on the way for Facebook, and it seems likely that Google could be next. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 6, 2019. More reports have emerged on China's extensive work to track and monitor its predominantly Muslim Uyghur minority. State security services, Reuters says, have compromised telecommunications networks in several Asian countries with a view to keeping track of the activities of Uyghur travelers. The affected networks have been found in, at least, Turkey, Kazakhstan, India, Thailand, and Malaysia. Other notes on Chinese activity focus on what appears to be a systematic effort to turn leaked equation group tools to Beijing's operational advantage. A checkpoint study of China's Buckeye Group, also known as APT3 or UPS Team, has followed up earlier work by Symantec and taken a look at Buckeye's Bemstower tool. Checkpoint concludes with appropriate reservations about the inevitable uncertainty of such assessments that Bemstower has adapted the equation group's eternal romance exploit to its own purposes. As the researchers put it in their conclusion, quote, attack artifacts of arrival, i.e. equation group, were used as the basis and inspiration for establishing in-house offensive capabilities. The job search service Monster.com has been affected by a data breach at an unnamed third party, a recruiting firm that's a Monster customer. TechCrunch notes that Monster did not notify affected individuals of the breach because, in their view, the data, once sold, becomes the responsibility of that third party, and Monster says it did notify the errant customer that they had a problem. TechCrunch also observed that there's no particular unanimity on the topic of whom to notify. Other companies faced with similar third-party data exposure have taken it upon themselves to notify affected individuals. Others, like Monster, see a line to be drawn here and argue that at some point the data you buy becomes your responsibility. A researcher with CSIS Security Group describes Joker Android spyware, computing reports that Joker has been found in 24 Play Store apps, The 10th Annual Billington Cybersecurity Summit concluded yesterday in Washington, D.C. We've got some notes on three of Thursday's keynotes. Major General Dennis Krall, U.S. Marine Corps, presently serving as Deputy Principal Cyber Advisor and Senior Military Advisor for Cyber Policy in the Department of Defense, framed military cyber policy thusly, This is all about outcomes. He offered three salient considerations for U.S. military cyber policy. First, Lethality. This has three aspects. Getting the right authorities, and these need to be not only the right ones to authorize sound operations, but they also need to be deep enough to enable forethought and anticipation. Processes, which need to be repeatable and to enable operators to use the authorities they've been given. In the context of process, General Krall quoted fellow Marine and former Secretary of Defense General Mattis, 
who said, quote, When good people meet bad process, bad process wins. End quote. And finally, of course, capabilities, a trained force with tools necessary to accomplish a mission. We should note that General Kral didn't discuss actual lethality. His usage seemed more metaphorical than literal. It would, our reporters thought, be a mistake to have heard him advocating a general shift of cyber activity toward killing. Effectiveness might be a useful gloss on what he called lethality. Second, partnerships. Such partnerships, General Kral said, are both domestic, where partners often have authorities the military lacks, and international, where allies cooperate to share information within a framework that affords a common level of protection. Finally, reform. At bottom, General Kral saw this as a commitment to keeping faith and trust by applying scarce resources in the most effective and affordable ways possible. The conference also heard from Christopher Krebs, director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. He discussed the vision of his agency, which is familiarly known by its acronym, CISA. Krebs said CISA is best thought of as the nation's risk advisor. He explained the agency has five principles of execution. First, operate with the statutory authority to lead critical infrastructure protection in a collaborative fashion. Second and third, CISA is committed to remaining results-driven and risk-focused. Fourth, the agency is determined to work consistently within the framework of constitutional rights and national values. And finally, CISA intends to execute and engage as one agency in one fight as one team. What this means in the short term is that the youngest agency in DHS will face its defining challenge next year, during the 2020 election season. Krebs concluded, quote, In 2020, we're going to lead. We're not going to let the Russians or the Chinese in. End quote. And the final keynote speaker was Kieran Martin, CEO of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre. He began with a description of the realities of the environment in which we live. We find ourselves, Martin argued, defending open digital societies. Prosperity is a social concern, and critical infrastructure presents a serious national risk. Cybersecurity is, at its core, about defending a way of life. We face a formidable set of adversaries. Russia is a determined, aggressive, disruptive opponent. Our commercial environment today is one in which our businesses are under routine, continuous Chinese assault. North Korea and Iran are active and hostile. Transnational cybercrime has become, cumulatively, a grave threat to the digital economy, and state actions have come to have serious collateral effects, quite apart from the effects they're designed to have on their intended targets. Both WannaCry and NotPetya illustrate this. And it's worth noting that none of the four state bad actors or the many criminal gangs have any particular stake in an open, reliably useful Internet. Operating in this world has led Martin to three conclusions— First, government matters. The Internet is a public good, but well-intentioned calls for public-private partnership have proven, he argued, a recipe for inaction. Instead, governments should take responsibility for detection, resilience, and making technology safer. That third responsibility he emphasized. It's too easy, Martin said, to succumb to what he called producer capture, the sort of Hobson's choice of security design big companies, in his view, too often offer their customers. Second, we must, quote, think carefully about our own footprints, end quote. Cyberspace may be an operational domain, but fundamentally it's a peaceful domain, and we must act in cyberspace with this in mind. 
Finally, governments need to look to the future, and that means looking for effective deterrence. And finally, it seems that antitrust investigators are circling closer to big tech. The Wall Street Journal reported this morning that state attorneys general are opening antitrust investigations of Facebook. New York's attorney general is leading the effort to be joined by Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Nebraska, North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, and the District of Columbia. On Monday, it's expected, the journal says, that Texas will announce that it and some three dozen other states are opening an investigation of Google. The inquiries seem to be about as bipartisan as such things can be nowadays. As an indication of public sentiment, they suggest that big tech is about where big steel and big oil were about a hundred years ago. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek Ben-Salem. She's the senior R&D manager for security at Accenture Labs. It's always great to have you back. You and I have been talking about the trip you recently made to RightsCon, uh, and one of the topics of discussion there was how to deal with disinformation campaigns online. What can you share with us? Yeah, so uh, one of the interesting conversations in that conference was about, you know, freedom of expression on the Internet versus censorship the voices that are asking now for more control and more moderation of what gets published on the internet. Uh, in particular, after the, of all the disinformation campaigns that we've seen throughout election cycles, for instance, the video of Nancy Pelosi a few months ago. So the question is, how, how can we fight disinformation? Whether there are any viable approaches, techniques, and can we do it without censorship, right, <laughs> without turning mm -hmm. into, while keeping the internet the way we know it as a platform for free expression. So what were some of the ideas tossed around? 
It seems that there is a consensus that we definitely need to develop standards of internet transparency and integrity. We also need to limit space for impersonators. Existing platforms, anybody can create an unlimited number of accounts in an anonymous, anonymous manner. The question is, do we need to have more checks to, to check that the, the people creating accounts are really, you know, physical people as opposed to bots, right, that can start building or propagating information uh, without them representing people in the real world. Mm. Uh, so they don't reflect the, the public opinion in, in the real world. Right. But then I suppose there's a, there are legitimate needs for anonymity online as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's really one of the advantages of, um, of the Internet. That gets also, I guess, reflected by the development of uh, platforms like blockchain and Ethereum, where you see platforms being created that are decentralized, distributed, and people can join anonymously that reflects the, the need for anonymity. It's still a trade-off. Uh, I don't think anybody would say that we need to completely remove the ability for people to interact in an anonymous manner, but limiting the space for impersonators is what's needed. Limiting that space meaning checking for bots that really have more harmful impact. Yeah, I mean, what, what a challenge to, to try to have uh, you know community standards when you have truly a global community. Especially as we see also that the impersonation techniques are, are changing and are evolving, right? Mm -hmm. Now you see uh, these bots infiltrating authentic social groups, right? So it's not like, you know, one bot that's broadcasting wrong information uh, on their own, but they're really infiltrating the, the more closed groups and, and domestic social media dialogue. How do you detect that is <laughs> not straightforward, but I think we need to do more research and come up with some ways of, again, not completely limiting this, but perhaps limiting the space for these impersonators. Yeah, it strikes me too that there's one of the things that by automating, the ability to automate these things, that that enables an, an asymmetry that I, I don't know that we had to deal with before, that the scale and velocity at which folks who are out there to spread misinformation and so forth can do so, it's a different ballgame than it used to be. Absolutely. The automation of the fast propagation of these uh, of this misinformation is, is at an unprecedented scale, but also uh, the automation of generating misinformation, automatically generating defakes, right? We've never mm -hmm. seen that before, automatically generating videos that mimic a real person that look really like a real person and that that are hard to detect in real time that's an absolutely new challenge and it will continue to grow uh, as we make use of you know gans general adversarial networks to perform or to build these deep fakes so it, it's a challenge that will continue to grow and we need to work with the social media companies to come up with some common standards where we can identify these deep fakes and synthetic data. Interesting stuff for sure. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers 
Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Doug Grindstaff. He's the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity Solutions for the CMMI Institute, an organization that was originally established by the Department of Defense to assess organizational capability around software development. My conversation with Doug Grindstaff centers on his notion that CISOs would do well to adopt some of the techniques commonly associated with VCs. He thinks they've got a lot in common. It is very similar to what the VCs face in that it is a very fast-paced and dynamic environment. It is an environment in which there are multiple threats and the risks are very high. And so being able to understand those risks, develop a methodology to de-risk those threats, and to focus the organization on very specific outcomes, I think is really critical to the success of AVC and in this case also a CISO. And so what are some of the unique things that VCs face that you think could be brought over to the world of CISOs? From a VC perspective, I think understanding what are the steps that are necessary to start to de-risk an investment in the case of a CISO, how do I understand the risks facing my business? Maybe that's a function of my business model. Maybe it's a function of my threat environment, my competitors. How do I understand those threats and then develop a very precise way of prioritizing those risks and then start to mitigate those risks. I think from a VC perspective, one of the issues that is critical is to understand what are the steps to de-risk my investment. As I start to de-risk my investment, I start to increase the value of that investment and increase the further likelihood of future investment. From a, a CISO perspective, being able to understand what are the most significant inherent risks to my business, what are those things that could be terminal, have a terminal impact on my business, and then start defining what are the necessary steps to mitigate those risks. It could be building new capabilities. It could be focusing on developing people, uh, acquiring new technologies. But that sense of prioritization, both from a VC perspective and from a CISO perspective, is, I think, really job one and, and mission critical. The sec second after that starts to become alignment. And if you're a successful as a VC, you have clear organizational alignment from the stakeholders, maybe the other stakeholders that are in the investment with you, all the way through the organization. What is the next crucial step, next crucial milestone we need to achieve in order to continue uh, to build this business and, and generate the returns we expect? From a, a CISA perspective, it's very much an analog. They also need to understand how do I create organizational alignment so my board understands and has defined our risk tolerances and the team that's supporting the security program understands exactly what are the most important security controls, what are the most important processes and technologies that are going to be part of mitigating those critical, those terminal risks. And then I think finally, and this one is what I often talk about as a as a Copernican shift for the CISO. From a VC perspective, I think it's very easy to think about focusing on outcomes. Right, there are very basic metrics that determine whether or not you're generating the kind of return. Am I, am I elevating my revenues to levels that are sufficient? Uh, am I able to demonstrate growth in EBITDA that allows me to demonstrate increases in value? 
From a scissor perspective, it's a little bit different. And the reason I refer to this as a, Copern a Copernican shift is that I think it's important to focus not so much on process, not so much on do I have sufficient um, control systems? Am I using the right standards? But am I focused on the outcomes? How do I know, how am I measuring whether or not the level of activity, the level of capability I have is sufficient to mitigate those key risks? We often think of sufficient capability as maturity. Do you have sufficient maturity in those critical capabilities that will start to mitigate the risks that your organization is facing? And, and obviously those risks are informed by all those things we mentioned earlier, the threat landscape, the competitive landscape, you know, that broad array of risks facing your business. And understanding that, putting it in the context and operationalizing it such that now I know what are those key steps and key investments I need to make to start to address those terminal risks, I think is just as important. And it's, I think it's a valuable analog because the VC works in a very dynamic, constantly shifting threat environment where the likelihood of success is not high and the downside risk is actually quite significant. Uh, it could result in loss of investment, loss of business. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me, as you point out, the CISOs, in my mind, they sort of sit between two groups. Uh, they quite often have the board above them, and then they have their team and the rest of the organization below them. So there's they're sort of sit in the middle of, a, a, I don't know if tension is the right word, between those two groups. I wonder, is the VC sitting in a, in a similar position, or is there someone... Uh, above them? What are the, the different sides they're uh, aiming to please? Yes, they're trying to please their shareholders. They have stakeholders, right? They have individuals who have pooled money to potentially create a fund where they're mm. expecting certain returns. And so the, the threshold returns are quite high and the time frame quite narrow mm. uh, for the VC. That generates a significant amount of tension as they start to try and support organizations to achieve you know, the de-risking process, generate increases in value and hopefully future investment. And what you described with the CISO, I think, is spot on. And I think it is an enormous challenge. VCs are used to working with the financial stakeholders. They're used to building uh, funds and generating specific targeted returns. But you know, you look at a lot of the folks that move into these roles of CISO and CSO, there is not a lot of training, whether it's how to put cybersecurity into a business context and, and think of it as a kind of key strategic plank for the business, whether it's defining the risk, not as an IT risk, but as an enterprise risk, you know, those kinds of strategic skills and that kind of board interaction are not commonplace in terms of their career path development. So gaining those skills and building that capability, I think is one of the really significant challenges facing most CISOs. I can't help noticing, I mean, the emphasis that you're putting on this whole notion of framing everything in terms of risk. And I, I really, I think we've tracked that trend over the past uh, year or more, that that's really a direction folks are headed. I would say that's true intellectually. We, hmm. we engage a lot of organizations across sectors, and I think there is a desire to understand risk, although unfortunately, a lot of organizations think of risk as the threat landscape. And when we think of risk, we think it as enterprise inherent risk. So we look across all elements of a security program from the physical security to risks of natural disaster to, of course, network and data integrity issues. So when we think of risk, we think of it holistically and use that understanding of the holistic risk, put into the context that the company uses to find their risk tolerances um, is important. And so once I can get a sense of what are the inherent risks, make sure they're in the same context that the organization thinks of all other risks on the business, and then create an operational plan that seeks to mitigate those risks. I think that is still 
evolving. It's not an easy process to work with the, let's say, the, an ERM and try to operationalize an ERM, an enterprise risk management tool that organizations use. Operationalizing that is quite challenging. And in fact, for the CMI Institute, we actually developed a methodology that creates a, a relational database that connects risk to capability to understand which capabilities matter most given you know, your organization's unique risk tolerances and risk profile. That's Doug Grindstaff from the CMMI Institute. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.